Hi everyone, it's Paul here, and I really can't think of anyone better to walk us through some of the key points in the history of immigration policy in the United States, or who has done more to raise awareness, uplift, and record the stories of Asian American immigrants than our guest on this episode, Professor Franklin Odo. And as Eugene and Professor Odo talk about this history, I think what was a bit haunting and not surprising, but really stuck with me, was that when Professor Odo talks about how not all families were created equal in the United States. And I think for me, just thinking about how much family is such a bedrock value of the United States and just how sanctified it is in the media and in political discourse and throughout its history, families remain unequal to this day. And we see this history repeated time and time again, as Professor Odo helps us understand. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this free history lesson from Professor Franklin Odo. Today I'm going back to school to speak with Professor Franklin Odo of Amherst College, my alma mater. Professor Odo is the John J. McCloy Professor of American Institutions and International Diplomacy and has served as the director of the Asian Pacific American Program at the Smithsonian Institute. Thank you so much for your time and going to be free education for me, so I'm really, really thankful. Ah, uh, glad to be here. Since you've listened to our pilot, you know that I really didn't begin to think too much about the broader geopolitical and historical questions as they relate directly to me. I would say it wasn't really until senior year, I guess, I was taking a transnational Shakespeare class, which maybe you know about. My professor kind of allowed us to explore the topics that we were interested in, so I did a little bit about Korean Shakespeare, and that was my first foray into Asian studies. But I was able to do it through... The skills that I had developed, you know, over the years with plays and literature. So I think that was really, really a great opportunity for me. And then that kind of prefaced how I thought about things in Korea when I was able to go live there for two years. So yeah, it's been a wild three or four years of thinking about these questions and continuing to think about these questions through this podcast. But I really do regret, as I think back, Amherst has so many classes about American studies, history, and now we even have Asian American studies, which you are a part of leading. I wasn't smart enough then to take any of those classes, so I'm kind of trying to get the education that I missed here today. And in particular, I was interested in talking about the Immigration Act of 1965, as you know. It was really, really interesting to me for two reasons. The first reason is I know that these days with the protests and everything that America has having this kind of reckoning in terms of its conscience and things like that, but it's very hard for you not to believe that America is a country for immigrants or is immigrant-based country, I guess. I mean, you grow up with Mayflower and yeah. all of these happy videos and cartoons and things like that. And you're like, oh, like I'm also an immigrant. They're also immigrants. This is like how it was since the inception. And I guess I had always kind of thought about the Immigration Act of 1965. Oh, like this is during, you know, civil rights movement time. Like I'm sure that that's when we kind of figured out everything and doors were opened. And it turned out that that was not the case. So I'm interested in asking you about that. And the other thing that really interested me was that it had a family reunification clause in there. 
that's really, really interesting in light of these days, which is how this podcast kind of started with family separation here. How does that relate to our immigration policy? And without going on too much, the last thing is just, I really hope that this episode is kind of laying the groundwork for understanding a lot of our other episodes. I mean, I don't think that I'm alone in being part of this group of people that started to just react very, very emotionally when children were separated at the border here and other things like that, immigration policies. Our initial reaction is, this is not who we are. And in some cases, like that's true, like aspirationally, it's not who we are. But at the same time, if we actually look back in history, it kind of is who we are. So I think it'll be really, really educational, of course, and also help put a lot of other interviews in perspective. So just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? You have obviously a awesome resume. But how did you become interested in Asian American studies that didn't exist back when you were in school, I think? And Today, you're teaching classes like, I think that one of the most interesting class titles is Asian American History and Model Minorities, Jewish and Asian Americans. Like, that did not exist, <laughs> even when I was in school, and that was only like four years ago. So I actually, you know, I'm not sure that exists anywhere else, actually. And probably it only exists because Wendy Berghoffen is a senior lecturer in American Studies Department, and she's the wife of Robert Hayashi, mm. who for a long time was the only game in town at Amherst College in terms of doing anything with regard to Asian American studies. And he, he was fighting a very lonely battle and was up against colleagues and an administration that was not supportive. When I came in 2015-16, it really made a difference because it basically doubled the number of people who mm. were then available. But the thing that really made the difference, I think, was the uprising in mm. fall of 2015 which you may remember. Yeah, that's also when I started thinking a lot about this. stuff. And for listeners who don't know, it was part of the many, many campus uprisings with Yale had an uprising, Mizu had an uprising, things like that. So Yeah, I mean, I think that the uprising began with three African-American women who just began actually setting up stage in the library, in Frost Library. Mm -hmm. And by the weekend, I think about half the student body was occupying the library. So Amherst being the liberal college that we are, they co-opted the whole thing by feeding the students <laughs> instead mm -hmm. of trying to kick them out by, by at least providing a platform for them to air their grievances. And I think to the extraordinary amazement of the administration, they saw not only African-American students and Latino students and Native American students, but they saw Asian American students in some show of force. And they had been operating under the modern minority paradigm, believing that because there are a significant number of Asian American students on campus, and they seemed to be doing okay, and they weren't rioting, that Amherst was inclusive enough to, to be doing okay. But what the students said was, okay, you admitted us in some numbers, uh, but we don't feel particularly welcome. And one of the reasons for that is, there's nothing that teaches us about our own experiences. There's nothing that says we belong to this country or to this college. And I think that helped provide the impetus for people to be taking classes like the ones that I was offering. That made a big difference in terms of impact on, on the campus. But for me, my graduate training was in China and Japan. As you noted correctly, there was no such thing as Asian American studies at the time. I got a PhD in Chinese and Japanese history, and I had started teaching 
1968 at Occidental College in mm -hmm. LA. This is an extraordinary time in American history, coming out towards the, the middle of anti-war activities across the globe. There were decolonization, independence movements, uprisings of various kinds in, in different places. The, the, the fact that we were engaging in Vietnam with a smaller nation that we thought would be easy to overrun. But a lot of, you know, with the wars, it made sense for the military to begin trying to inculcate an anti-Asian sentiment, particularly among the troops, so mm -hmm. that they would have an easier time shooting people of Asian descent. And so the racism was palpable. So the Asian American Studies group, uh, along with other ethnic studies groups, really sort of understood that we were fighting a global uh, revolution. And, and I basically got hijacked by it. <laughs> so I had, I had all these fancy degrees from Princeton and Harvard and Stanford. I thought I was hot shit. And I, I thought I was pretty smart, you know. But then all this stuff started happening assassinations of Bobby Kennedy, Zach Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, cities burning. And I don't know what the hell was going on. So it made sense to me to say, okay, these higher education institutions didn't teach me. I need to try to figure this out along with other people who are involved in this. So that's basically giving up the old Asian studies approach and looking at a very new uh, way of looking through the lens of Asian Americans at race and the history of race in the world and in the United States. So that's a short <laughs> and <laughs> pretty complex question. Yeah, if there can be a short answer. <laughs> I think that one part that struck me was when you said that, you know, you had all these great degrees, you had a great academic background, you know, pretty much, I'm not going to say everything, but pretty much everything about Chinese Japanese history. And you probably have a greater grasp of why this war is happening in Vietnam and things like that. How did you balance that with taking action? I guess that's kind of a core theme under this podcast, I guess. You know, this if you're listening to this, you're probably decently educated and you feel much better because you are gaining some more understanding, but we always kind of try to return to, okay, so what, what can we do? So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. No, that was a very dramatic uh, switch. I mean, I think part of it was the times. So, for example, teaching becoming a professor for the first time. Grade inflation, which you all grew up with, you know, a B plus is a very bad grade in many institutions, including Amherst. This was not the case in the 60s. People really felt free to give C's and D's if we thought students deserved that. But it turns out that when the war advanced and the draft was imposed and there were not enough bodies, eventually student deferments became endangered and the first step in that was if they stayed in college, they were de deferred for a while, not, not forever, but for a while. But if they flunked out, they were subject to the draft. So if you mm. participated as a, as a professor in assigning bad grades to young men in particular, you were complicit, we thought, mm -hmm. maybe sending people into the army and maybe to their death. It was a heavy kind of thing. So one of the ways of Addressing that was not to give bad grades. But the other was, what the hell are we doing in Vietnam? Why are all these GIs coming back accustomed to having killed civilians, raping the women, uh, and, and bringing back a lot of anti-Asian thoughts? Uh, the whole impulse to protest had already begun with the Berkeley free speech movement. 
Mm-hmm. And there were also lots of then protests, sit-ins, hunger strikes, and so on. The Cesar Chavez and the, and the Farm Workers Union. And then college, 1968, was when the San Francisco State Ethnic Studies Third World student mm-hmm. strike took place. So that happened at the same time that I began my teaching career. So it was really sort of all around. But I think the catalyst for this was having a wife who had been engaged in civil rights demonstrations. For example, was in, in 1962 in Oberlin, had gone down to Mississippi as part mm-hmm. of the student writers, the bus guys. So just by osmosis, I think I understood that the civil rights battles were important in terms of generating community action and that they mattered. They mattered. So it made it made sense. Although I will say there there were very few faculty people who at the level of beginning instructors or professors who actually participated in this. So it took a little bit of doing to join mm. them. Yeah, especially as a new professor, you know, it's you have so much to lose. So picking your side is Probably, yeah, much more difficult to do. No, I I took some hits, but it but it seemed to me that the the stakes were really high. I think that's a very very helpful story for a lot of us because you know it's not it's not as if you were like you were not Martin Luther King, but you know there's still you we all have our own battles you know for standing up for what we believe in. So I think that's really really helpful. I am curious to know what you think about the current situation versus the '60s. It's not the same thing at all, but. I think that I'll save that conversation for the end for now. I was wondering if we could just go back and get some scaffolding, I guess. Could you give us a little bit of a history of general immigration policy? That's a lot. So, I mean, as it relates to the Immigration Act of 1965. So, yes, that, that is a big... But I, I think how you started this with divided families, for example, mm-hmm. and understanding that having the, the assumption that the United States is pro-family, except for people who are not welcome. And I think one of the things that is becoming really, really evident with the right-wing white supremacy kind of things, of of white people feeling uh, aggrieved and in in jeopardy because the demographers have been telling us for some time now that the United States is on an inevitable trajectory where there will be more people of color than white people at some point in the not-so-distant future anymore. So for a couple of decades, people have been predicting this. But every time they predict this, the interim period becomes shorter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just because there are more people of color immigrating, and people of color are younger and having Mm -hmm. more kids. So I think now, even the K-12 population is already more students of color than white. So they attempt to, for example, the latest Trump administration executive order to limit the numbers of international students is just a part of this now. I think it begins as early when the, when the Chinese start entering uh, as part of the gold rush and, and then being recruited for the Central Pacific Railroad in the 1850s and 1860s. And the numbers of Chinese in California were significant. So people were, had, they thought, had reason to be concerned about the numbers. So the first immigration act that tried to stop the proliferation of Chinese was the Page Act in 1975. It was directed at Chinese women immigrating, accusing them of being all prostitutes, not, not your best people. Yeah. So, um, so, but that, that 
clearly is a way of trying to make sure that there's just males who come, work, and then go back home. As long as that's the order of the day, then people are not so threatened by it. But miscegenation and incorporation of other families and proliferation of communities is a problem if you don't, if you don't think these people fit in your country. So 1882, which most people think of as the beginnings of this, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which then is broadened to include all Asians and Pacific Islanders and culminating in 1924. And that act basically solidifies a hierarchy of people who are deemed compatible with the United States as as immigrants, beginning with white Anglo-Saxons and delimiting the numbers of Southern Europeans or Eastern Europeans or Jews. So we have a long history of this. And 65 is the first time that things change. And they change partly because this is because 65 is an accident, not designed to actually redress the wrongs that were in place for 60 or 80 years. Could we now get into that accident? Because this is what was actually so interesting to me was I mean, I guess, you know, if you have a rosy perception of history, you think that, you know, everybody thinks everything through, which is, you know, we're not thinking everything through. So clearly they couldn't have been thinking everything through. Could you walk us through the circumstances with the well, Ohio congressman and yeah, uh, just kind I, of... You know, I'm not an expert on this, but I know him enough that when Lyndon Johnson gives his speech, uh, signing the bill below the Statue of Liberty... Mm-hmm. and assuring the American public, and a lot of people do this, they say, this is not a radical bill. The family reunification part of it is really intended to help Northwestern Europeans, because mm-hmm. that's who most of the American population is. And so they thought that that would help bring other Northwestern European people, Anglo-Saxon people, into the United States. And so that, that was a miscalculation, because the, the way that actually worked was another part of it was to bring in people with skills. And so a number of the people with skills happened to be East Asian and South Asian. And so those are the groups that came first with skill sets that were required, like information technology and medical fields and so on. And Mm -hmm. then they subsequently then used the family reunification provisions, bring their families over. And a lot of their families were not necessarily as educated or as skilled as they were. The communities expanded tremendously after 1970 in particular. So to go back to the family reunification clause, I understand how it would be very, very appealing to use that in order to get bipartisan support for the bill. JFK, before he's assassinated and then turns the bill over to Johnson, he's already thinking about immigration reform because he's a Irish immigrant or son of Irish immigrants. I guess that just leads to the question, like inevitable question is, if family is so appealing, you know, as a political tool, has that always been the case in American history? I mean, it might be universal, but does it have any particular Americanness to it? If you, if you think about slavery and the proliferation of children as property, then yes, you don't want to keep families together. So dividing families, fathers, from mothers and their children, or their children as soon as they're capable of fending for themselves, increases your property holdings and, and the mm-hmm. value of, of your, your slave holding. 
But you don't want them to particularly want to be taking care of one another. You want them to be atomized, but you don't necessarily want them to stop reproducing. So that's one thing. For the people like the Chinese immigrants or later Japanese or Korean immigrants, the first group of Asian immigrants that defied this or resisted this was Japanese immigrants. And part of the reason is that their government was a rising national military power, which is something that the Chinese and Koreans didn't have. And the Koreans, in fact, by the early 1900s, were already a colony of Japan. And so it was not in the Japanese government's interest to try to create Korean diaspora community. But they did want their immigrant laborer men to have some kind of stability. And so they mandated the, the first contracts were with the uh, Hawaiian government. And they knew that the practice of excluding women from the Chinese communities led to social ills like prostitution and drug use, mm -hmm. alienation, and so on. So they uh, mandated that the Hawaiian government include at least one Japanese woman for every four Japanese men. That led to its own problem. So you had four hormone-laden guys fighting mm -hmm. over one. So yeah. You had a lot of really terrible situations, like stealing wives and all that kind of stuff. But you had communities growing, which is why the whole first-generation, second-generation, third-generation paradigm begins with Japanese immigrants. This is a common kind of uh, paradigm that we use for Asian immigrants and, and their descendants now. But that was not common until the Japanese experience. That's really, really interesting. And I'm kind of curious now about like family as a value. I mean, if we were just to kind of compare family as like a Protestant value or religious value from the West, and then we compare it as an Eastern, more like Confucian value. In what sense is it universal? And in what sense is it not universal? Like what are the differences? And that might be a very, very difficult question. Like we might have to get some expert on families and culture, but you might know a little bit. So yes, I, curious. I, I don't know. I mean, I mm. think this is a different kind of a expertise. But I think many cultures have placed priorities on families and family unification and family togetherness and as parts of communities. But clearly, this is certainly not priority with regard to American policies in terms of keeping families together with Latinx or Native American or Asians, immigrants. Clearly not true. Yeah, I think that that's actually really, really interesting because it's kind of almost like, I mean, if, we're, if we were to take the perspective that, you know, racism is seen as this corrupting force. So if lots of Asians come into America, like you are going to taint the demographic of generally white people. And in that case, it's kind of almost like, I mean, on the one hand, you're already dehumanized, so your family is not important. But on the other hand, it's almost as if you are now a risk to my family because interracial marriage, interracial anything is just considered taboo. So that's a lot to think about. <laughs> it, it, it runs so counter to one of the, the main premises of, of uh, foundational premises of American society that we are a family-oriented society. And that clearly does not apply to all families and all communities and hasn't for quite a long time. Yeah, I think that digging up why that is would be, I mean, it would probably be a nerdy and academic task that may not have that much value. But it is very interesting to think about how the, the first family, like that's a, it's on a pedestal, like the White House family is just a picturesque thing that everyone's supposed to look at. And why is that 
worshipped in that way is kind of weird. Is it like a religious artifact or not? I'm not sure. But I guess on the topic of integration and bringing in different families, and we've seen that over time, it becomes a little bit more lenient, like things push outward, kind of, as in, uh, you know, a couple generations ago, interracial marriage seen as taboo. Gradually, as you, as it happens anyway, becomes a little bit more acceptable. So I guess to bring that in connection with JFK, and he's a Irish immigrant, or fam- families, um, Irish immigrants, on this topic of whiteness, why does it broaden to include previously marginalized communities like, you know, Irish people, Jewish people, or I don't know. I don't even know if you could really say Jewish people are white, but that's an interesting transformation. So you see, back in the 1840s or 1850s, if you go back to the popular magazines of that period, you see political cartoons that depict Irish immigrants, people who who were being stereotyped as criminals on the on the streets. So then then to have the Irish become the Kennedys, and become mm. accepted as part of white America. That's a long evolution that, that takes place. That's true of Eastern Europeans like Poles. Interestingly, the, the one group where that doesn't apply so stringently is Jews. So that you have the right-wing nationalist, white supremacist groups saying Jews will not replace us. That, that's an interesting anti-Semitic stuff with people who are titularly at least considered white. I mean, all, the, all of these constructions are what Michael Omi and Howard Wynant back in this racial formations uh, book would call mm. social constructions. They're not genetic. They're, they're not biological. They're made up by societies for their own particular conveniences at, at the time. Uh, they have, they're not particularly simple, but they are manufactured. It's just such a complex, you know, like interweaving of on the one hand, the visual, like social visual uh, aspect of it, where, you know, this person looks more like me than an Asian person looks like me. At the same time, there's the religious aspect and also the economic aspect and all of these things. So it's a lot. <laughs> I meant to mention, so the popular magazines in the 1840s and 50s, mm-hmm. when, when the Irish were not considered white, if you look at the political cartoons, they're depicted as black. I mean, they're literally, they look like black and they're colored black so it's really interesting that you know and how that changes and really even the up to 1924 the national origins act which placed a really strict hierarchy of who's desirable and who's not those groups are really in between really desirable groups like northwestern white europeans anglo-saxon europeans and the ones who are totally excluded like mm-hmm. Asians and Pacific Islanders, and the ones who are in between, like Southern Europeans or Eastern Europeans or Middle Easterners or brown people from Latin America. So, yeah. It's a lot. The categories sometimes shift, and they shifted very dramatically in 65. And, and that really led to some consequential events that, that we're dealing with today. I would be very curious also to know the extent to which Asians have become subsumed under that whiteness you know like we are not uh actually white we are actually look different and whatnot but um, honorary white yeah honorary whites well actually i mean while i'm here do you have any thoughts on that well you know i mean this is the model minority myth It, it, it is a real ideology and a myth number one it doesn't cover all asians 
because you have Southeast Asians and South Asians who are uh, people of different colors who mm. don't fit into this. But it really, it, it has a real distinct beginning in 1966 when it gets actually published in print with New York Times supplement with the Japanese Americans first considered to have been a model minority. And, and, it, and it does two things. It, it celebrates the American mythology, the dream that anybody can make it if he or she or the community defers gratification, has the correct values on education and cultural priorities, and doesn't riot mm-hmm. <laughs> and doesn't protest mm-hmm. in any active form. And so clearly it's a put down of the civil rights movement. So it's no accident that it begins in the 60s. But it has its origins, I think, in at least World War II. Clearly is functioning to serve a particular ideology that says the, the American exceptionalism is still alive and well, even though it's being disrupted and, mm. and dismembered as we mm. speak yeah. with, uh, with the pandemic and with the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the anti-police, the real concerns about racism. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is a different age. And I, I do think, I think a lot of people are having to confront stuff that the country as a whole ignored for, for many decades. They still remember one of our public intellectuals, Francis Fukuyama, who mm-hmm. wrote a book in the 90s, I guess, announcing the end of history, that, mm-hmm. that in fact racism had gone and, and we're all now at the peak of liberal democracy and it's all over. This turned out not to be true at all. And in fact, I mean, those, those of us, you know, who have been saying, look, there's an underlying structure, what, what is now famously and sometimes misleadingly just simply called systemic racism or institutional mm-hmm. racism. I mean, those things have been with us forever. And, and hopefully we, there are at least more changes that can be made. Uh, with the realization that, that this stuff is more than just microaggression. And the place of Asians in this, the East Asian, Asian Americans, the so-called model minority, is really precarious. And I think the pandemic revealed some of those uh, faults, including mm-hmm. the anti-Asian harassment that has been going on around the country. Clearly, uh, we're not indistinguishable from whites. People can tell. <laughs> yeah, people can tell and it's conditional. <laughs> I guess the last question that I had then is now to come bring everything back full circle is you mentioned that we're having this national reckoning. I mean, it is national reckoning. It's same as it's like Amherst uprising, but you know, it's like American uprising. It's the entire country. We have cause to reflect on everything that's happened and also make lasting adjustments. And I understand that, you know, symbolic changes are sometimes just appeasements like it's just oh like you can be happy with this and you know now you can stay quiet which is absolutely not true but at the same time i think that the symbols really do matter like looking forward i mean my symbols were as i mentioned earlier mayflower like you literally have to cut up a construction paper and make a little boat and like sing the song and whatever in elementary school so i'm happy that those symbols and education will change but uh, i just wanted your thoughts on and you've seen much more than i have this is, you know, <laughs> the biggest thing that I've seen. Maybe also you, but how does this compare to previous, I guess the 60s is the most obvious parallel, but do you see it as different, similar? Well, you know, 
I'm an historian by training, and historians mm -hmm. are notorious fortune tellers. I mean, <laughs> we're very bad. We always tell people that knowing your history uh, helps you understand the present and sort of understand what the parameters are for the future. But I, I am not so sure that this is mm -hmm. actually the case. I, I think maybe knowing the history sets some limits on what you can foretell. If I did that, my experience over half a century of looking at race and American society and global society through the lens of race and capital would lead me to be pretty cynical, I think. Mm. Just that there, there have been times when change looked imminent, but then get lost over and the, the system, whatever you may call it, capitalism or social democracy or the, the kind of inequalities that we have, the people who are in charge with all the resources and wealth at their disposal, who want to keep the status quo as consistent as possible because it's, they're doing well, you know, except for a few individuals maybe, are not invested in trying to dr dramatically change the status quo. I mean, that alone should tell us that real structural change is going to be difficult. We can get police chiefs who are black, still have police unions that are powerful, and institutions that are funding uh, militarizing the police, for just to take a small example. But everything else, the, the whole health system, education system, the economic system, the banks, everything else is structurally unchallenged or mm -hmm. remains basically the same. So it's hard for me to see dramatic change, at mm -hmm. least in the near term future. But what the hell? <laughs> what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. So you, you do what you're doing. You, you do what you think is right. And I think that that, I mean, some might take that as kind of not that inspiring, but I think that it can be inspiring because these are, could, you could think of them as dark times, but I feel like they're necessary dark times. And I feel like there's a lot of really admirable things that have happened. And I guess for those who are interested in the things that we've talked about in this conversation, if you watch the PBS documentary on Asian Americans, you have to buy it now, but I think it's worth it. That will go through a lot of what we've covered and more. And I think that one part of that that really stuck with me was the, as you had mentioned in an email, the Suru for Solidarity. Former Japanese internment victims were protesting the separation of children at the Mexico border. And when we started this, we didn't know about, when we started this podcast, we didn't know about that. But these things happen and it might be incremental, but the things that we change here at home are actually, in the long run, the only way to shift those uh opinions, I think. So I think that's a good place to kind of close. But did you have anything else you wanted to add for history or your future students or future, maybe not your students, but students? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think Tsuru is a good place to end. And when, when we started in, in the 1970 census, Japanese Americans were the largest single Asian ethnic group in the country. And they were like one and a half million of us, less than one, about one half of 1% of the mm -hmm. population. So now we're close to 20 million people, Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. And Japanese Americans are the sixth largest and, and the most integrated, the most assimilated, the most acculturated of all. And so in some ways, maybe the least likely to be socially active and alive to issues of 
contemporary alienation and, and racism. For one thing, I, that's the group I belong to and my heritage, so I'm not particularly objective about this. Mm. But, it, but it is um, a matter of some satisfaction, I think, that it's a group that has rallied behind the detention facilities and the separation of families and trying to link our own heritage of the incarceration World War II stuff that effectively was also a way to try to stop the growth of Japanese Americans as an ethnic group. And during World War II, there was one law, one bill introduced in Congress, which did not pass, but which tried to sterilize all the Japanese women in camps. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, the fact that it was, and I think it was somebody from Nevada, Nebraska, Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't taken up for deliberation. It just got introduced. But the fact that it was even introduced, I think, is an interesting sideline about families. Actually, that's something that is actually really surprising to me because this episode is not out yet, but I interviewed another Amherst alumna about the Roma population and the Holocaust, uh -huh. and their women were also sterilized. So I feel like that's just uh, not enough. I haven't thought enough about that to really have any deep thoughts, but it's just such an interesting kind of preventing the spread of oh, yeah, yeah. this ethnic so, group. So the lead person who produced the PBS series you, you referenced, Renee mm -hmm. Tajima Pena, did, did another documentary called Nomas Babies. And that story is about Los Angeles in the 20s and 30s, I think. Anyway, mm -hmm. pre-World War II, about doctors who sterilized Mexican women mm -hmm. without their knowing it against their will, without telling them. So, mm. yes, so we have a long history of this, this kind of behavior. I guess that'll be the place to end here as a to-be-continued will as a podcast. Think more about that and check out the documentary. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for bringing me back to school and look forward to seeing how the Amherst kind of Asian studies, Amherst Asian movement, I guess, grows. Because... In many ways, the uprising was kind of the start <laughs> in some ways. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Divided Families podcast. If you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project, please follow us on social media at Divided Families Podcast. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the wonderful music and see you next time.